0: Amen. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, as we continue our study through the book of Joshua. We'll find ourselves one more week in Joshua chapter 7. In 1656, an English Puritan by the name of John Owen wrote a little book titled, The Mortification of Sin." Now in the 17th century the word mortification meant to kill. This was a book on how to kill sin. And the entire book was an exposition of Romans 8:13 which says this: For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. John Owen was reflecting on the fact that that verse was written to believers. Those who have already received Jesus Christ's death as the payment for their sins, those who are free from the condemning power of sin, yet still must be persistent in fighting sin because there is a very real battle waging in us and around us. The entire book was a reminder that even though we have been saved, the battle with sin remains, and it's still a battle of life and death. And in that little booklet, he says these words. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now last week from Joshua chapter 7, we saw an example of what it looks like to not be killing sin. When a man named Achan directly disobeyed the Lord sinned against the Lord, tried to hide his sin, but was exposed because of the rippling effects of sin. And We saw last week the rippling effects of unseen sin. Even in the lives of a believer, sin still has consequences. And Joshua chapter 7, as we saw last week, is really a picture of life with Jesus, the constant battle with sin. This morning, I, I want to I look one more time at Joshua chapter 7. Now, this wasn't my plan. When I mapped out this series, I was going to do one sermon from Joshua 6 and one from 7 and one from 8. But I really feel like the Lord is stirring something up. Every Monday morning, your pastors and staff gather together in this room and we pray. And we make sure we give the glory back to the Lord for the good things that happen on Sunday. And we pray for the week ahead. We pray for you. And as we've been praying, all of us have been sensing that through this series of messages that God's been stirring something up. And I want to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure that we see this progression in Joshua 6 through 8. I mean, Joshua 6 was a reminder that life is filled with battles that we must fight by faith. Every moment of life is a battle, and the way in which we fight these battles is through faith. Then we come to Joshua 7, as we saw last week, and it reminds us of the consequences not fighting sin. So Joshua 6 is really to stir up faith in us. Joshua 7 is to stir up fear in us that we might see that sin does have consequences. And then Joshua 8, which we'll see in a couple of weeks talks about the new mercies that are available to those who confess their sin and desire after sinning to walk in newness of life. But today, I I, want to just address a couple of things. I want to look back at Joshua 7 and talk about sin and temptation and just notice a couple of things we learned from Achan about how sin and temptation work. And then I want us to turn to James chapter 4. And I want to give you some very practical application on how we fight sin on a moment-by-moment, daily basis. And the one point I want to make to you this morning is the simple point of John Owen, and that is this. If you are not killing your sin, it will be killing you. So let's look at Joshua chapter 7. I want to make two points about sin that we learn from, Josh, from Achan. The first one is this. I want to notice the progression of temptation. The progression of temptation. Now, you may remember the story from last week, if you were here, you may have heard it before. That the people of God are moving, they're advancing, they're taking the promised land. And the land represents life as God intended for it to be. So all of this is a picture of our journey with Christ as we're going to take hold of eternal life. We're going to take the full promises of God, everything for us, in that place of ultimate rest in heaven. But the journey that we have there is a significant one, and the book of Joshua tells us about that journey. So Joshua and the people of Israel are progressing, and he is leading them well. They're experiencing some supernatural things. They crossed the Jordan River supernaturally. They went to Jericho and marched around it and saw the walls fall down in a way that only God can do. And the hero of every story is the Lord himself. He's the one that is fighting on their behalf. He is the one that is giving them the victory. They had this incredible victory in Jericho and God gave them one instruction. He said, when you go and see the treasured items in Jericho, do not take them for yourselves. But instead bring those to the treasury of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something here. What you have in Joshua 7, when they go into Jericho, and Joshua 6 into Jericho, is the principle of first fruits. The principle of first fruits. Do you know that when we get to Joshua 8 in just a couple of weeks, that they're going to go into AI and the Lord's going to say this. Every treasured thing you say in AI, take for yourself. Just take it. It's all yours. But when they go into Jericho, he says, Don't take any of those things because those are the first fruits and they belong to me. He was going to see if they had enough faith to believe that if they took all of that treasure and gave it to the Lord, that there would be greater treasure waiting for them next. It was a step of, of faith. And that's the reason even God still commands the principle of first fruits that when it comes to giving to the Lord, you don't come to the end of the month and see what you have left and give something to the Lord. You know that? You give from the first fruits. Because every single time you give, it is an act of faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. When you take from the first fruits and give something to the Lord, what you're essentially saying is this Lord, I'm doing this out of obedience and trusting that you're going to bless it and you will come through. Giving him the leftover gives no faith whatsoever. It's a principle of first fruits, but Achan didn't believe the Lord, he didn't trust the Lord. And he saw the treasure, and he took it for himself. And look at what it says in verses 20 and 21 in Joshua 7, after Joshua discovers it was Achan and calls him out. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now here it is. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, if you're in the habit of marking in your Bibles, I would encourage you to mark down these four words, maybe circle them or underline them. In verse 21, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. That's the progression of sin. He said, I saw them. He couldn't have helped that. Everybody saw them. He was one of the soldiers going in. There was stuff laying everywhere. He saw them, but then he coveted them. He then took them and he hid, and then he hid them. This is the progression of temptation. And if you've read your Bibles, this should sound a bit familiar to you. Because you see this over and over as early as Genesis chapter 3, when Eve says, I saw, I took, I ate, and then she hid This is how temptation always works. I saw, I took, I ate. 2 Samuel chapter 11, the sin of David and Bathsheba, it says the similar thing. It says David saw Bathsheba. He inquired about Bathsheba. He then took Bathsheba. He then lay with Bathsheba. He then covered up his sin with Bathsheba. I remember reading earlier this year in just my normal daily Bible reading, the story of David and Bathsheba. I've read that a hundred times. I've preached it. I've heard sermons from it. But I noticed something I've never noticed before. That in this progression of sin, it was actually a rather slow progression. He saw her. I don't know if he could have helped that or not. He's standing there. He looks out. He sees her. But then after he sees her, he inquires about her, which takes some time. He has to call someone and then send them to go inquire. And then after he inquires, he then takes her. And then after he takes her, he lay with her. And then after that, instead of confessing his sin, he tries to cover up his sin. And I just saw for the first time how many opportunities God gave David to stop. He could have stopped after he saw He could have even inquired, and after he inquired, he could have stopped. He could have even stopped after he sent someone to take her. And then even after he laid with her, he could have confessed his sin and admitted his sin instead of covering up his sin, but he never did. And this is the way temptation works. There is always a progression to temptation. And what you see in David's life is the same thing you see in Eve's life, and the same thing you see in Achan's life, and the same thing you see in your life and my life, and it is this. It is this massive rolling snowball of sin and temptation that you don't stop now and it goes a little further and then you don't stop then and it goes a little further and it doesn't stop then and it goes a little further and it gets to the point that you don't know what to do with it any longer and you try and try to hide it, but someday it's going to catch up with you. And here it is, just a clear picture of all of the opportunities God gives us to say no to sin in the progress of temptation. You know, I don't like when people say, well, did you ever hear about so-and-so? They, they fell into sin. They fell into immorality. We say this about pastors. Boy, did you hear about that pastor? He fell into sin. Can I tell you something? No one ever falls into sin. They slowly slide there. Can I tell you that? If you see someone who fell into sin, all you're seeing is the last moment. You're not seeing all of the things that happened before that moment that led to the fall. No one falls into sin. No one just sins. There is a progress of temptation that is always working itself out in our lives. I think what you have here is a picture of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, a verse we know. But This is a really great picture of it. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, listen to this, but will provide a way of escape. Do you know the way of escape is in that series of progression of temptation, God has given you moment after moment after moment to stop. You can stop when you see, you can stop when you covet, you can stop when you take. There are all of these moments that God has given us. What I want you to notice in your life is the way in which temptation works and see at the very first sign of the progression towards sin and stop it early because the further it goes along, the more difficult it is to stop. Don't you feel this in your life? I mean, I, I feel like the, the, the way I'm thinking about it these days is almost different kinds of warfare because this is warfare. That at the moment you see, you can do an aerial attack and you can drop a bomb on that sin and just decide, I'm going to stop it right here. But if you don't, then you're going to have to do some ground war. And then if you don't do that, you're going to have to do some hand-to-hand combat. And with every single step you let it go further, the more difficult it is to win. God will give you moments of escape. This is always the way temptation works. And what we learn from Achan is in this progression of temptation, God allows you a way of escape. So I want to plead with you to take it before it's too late. The progression of temptation. The second thing I want you to notice about sin from Achan is the choice to sin. The choice to sin. I I, I just want to make it clear that sinning is a choice. You choose to either walk in obedience or you choose to walk in sin. And the sad irony of the life of Achan is what we saw last week. Just the entire picture here is that God was leading his people to the promised land. Do you realize that once you get, as I said before, to chapter 8, Achan can take anything he wants. All of the spoils of Ai are his. But he chooses before that to fail to walk by faith in the promises of God and chooses instead to satisfy his desires at the moment instead of waiting for God to satisfy them at a later time. Listen to this. Choosing to sin is always an issue of faith. It's always an issue of faith. It was for Achan. Achan, do you believe that if you say no to this, God will have something better for you later? Because he promised that. The question is, do you believe it? And Achan did not believe it. It is always an act of faith. Do you believe that what Jesus has to offer you is better than what you're about to take? Achan gets anxious, he wants something now, and so he took it and experiences the consequences of it. But every single time you sin, you're you're making a trade. You're saying, I am choosing, Romans chapter eight, death over life. I'm choosing to be satisfied now instead of believing that what Jesus has to offer me is better, Because here's what Jesus says. Jesus says over and over, if you really want to experience life, it's found in me. That I've put my very Holy Spirit inside of you, and you might have the opportunity as you walk in the Spirit to experience more and more life. But every time you choose to walk in sin, you are choosing death over life. You are allowing death to reign in you instead of life to reign in you. So you are trading what the world has to offer for what Jesus has to offer, which means you simply don't believe Jesus is better. It is always an issue of faith. You know, Achan broke a bunch of the 10 commandments. Three of them, very obviously. He coveted, he stole, and he lied. All of them to his own admission, Right there, he coveted, he stole, and he lied. Do you know the greatest commandment that Achan broke? Is the first one. There was another God he loved more than he loved the Lord. It started right there. I mean, all the other stuff was, was after that, that Achan loves something more than he loved the Lord. And when he loves something more than he loved the Lord, all the other things just came afterwards. This is always a battle of faith in our lives. And this is why Ephesians 6 says, we go into warfare with the shield of faith because when sin comes our way and the moment we have an opportunity to escape, what we remind ourselves of this, listen, listen, I'm gonna stop because Jesus is better. Because life is better, because God is better, because I believe in the promise of Jesus that I walk in obedience, what I get is better. And I might not see it now, but I will see it later, and I simply remind myself that Jesus is better. That's the shield of faith. I'm not gonna do that because Jesus is better. So the way I extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy is by reminding the enemy that what Jesus promises is better than what he promises. It's always an act of faith. And Achan shows us the way in which this works in our life, this snowball, this progression toward temptation and the choice to sin and the way in which we battle that. What I want you to see is this, is that life with Jesus is war. Life with Jesus is war. All of the book of Joshua is a picture of life with Jesus. There is a very real battle that we are fighting And if you're not fighting that battle, then you're losing that battle. So not only do I want you to see the progression of temptation and then understanding that what you're choosing is that Jesus is better by faith, but I wanna take just a minute and give you a very practical strategy for how to fight off sin. It was a couple of years ago in which in our church, I saw two men within a year have a massive moral failure and it is what showed me uh, that no one actually falls because the deeper I got into the situation, the more I realized there was a long pattern of disobedience that just at one moment which is exposed. It was in that moment that the Lord brought me to James chapter 4. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. Go to the other end of the Bible. And after the book of Hebrews, go to the book of James and look at James chapter 4. And I want to give you what I believe is a continual process For fighting sin, continual process. And I emphasize those words because this is not a one-time thing. It is not even a -a once-a-day thing. It is a continual process of fighting sin. I wanna read James 4, one through 10, but I'm gonna really focus on verses seven and eight. If you're there at James chapter four, say amen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So already it's saying you have conflict. Know this, the conflict is not a result of other people. The conflict is a result of something inside of you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen carefully here. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Very quickly, I want to give you three statements on how to fight sin. I really want to encourage you to write these down. Take anything, a pen, a mascara, something, and write these three things down, all right? Here it is. The first one is this. Put yourself in your place. Put yourself in your place. That's right there in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You might have noticed that this text is really bookended with the idea of humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, and then in verse 10, so humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is a reference to the disposition of your heart toward God and others. Meaning that if you are going to fight sin, it must begin with the disposition of humility before God and others. That God is Lord and you are not. And that you must openly acknowledge your sin in order to make progress. Let me tell you the irony of sin and the way in which the devil works. The devil wants to tell you that if you admit your sin, those consequences are going to be greater than not admitting your sin. But here's the way it works. If you fail to confess your sin, that's called pride, and God opposes the proud. So you will never get help for your sin and never get over your sin unless you begin by confessing it, because the more you keep it in, the more God opposes you. God is opposing the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So it is a reminder of our disposition before God and others, the awareness that we can't win this battle without him, that we are weak and sinful and unable. And here's the command in verse 7, submit yourself to God. That word means to put things in their proper order, to to line up in order. An example of that would be as kindergartners are going from their room to the lunchroom. And the teacher says, line up in order. And there is the teacher and everyone is filed in order and they're to be walking in a line behind their teacher headed to where they're going This is a picture of the way in which we are to be lined up under the Lord Jesus Christ. We get ourselves in our proper place, which is lined up under the authority of Christ, under his direction. He leads, and we follow. Every single moment throughout the day, we are aligning ourselves with the Lord. We are looking to him as the one who leads, and we follow. Our mission at Prince is simple, to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. I've said this over and over and over. I will continue to say it. Choosing to trust and follow Jesus is not a one-time decision. It is choosing a life in which in entering into this life, you begin to trust and follow Jesus every moment of the day. If you made some decision and prayed some prayer that you're going to follow Jesus, but you never followed him, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian if you said 20 years ago, I'm going to follow Jesus, but you never followed him. That's not a Christian. A Christian is someone who says, I choose to follow Jesus. And as a result, sometimes really well, sometimes really poorly, we choose to trust and follow Jesus. What he's saying is this. When you submit yourself to the Lord, you're getting yourself into your proper place, your heart aligned under Christ. He is the leader. We are the follower. We are submitting ourselves to him. Because at every moment of temptation, it's a battle of supremacy. Who's going to lead right now? You or him? Who's going to make the call? You or him? And so throughout the day, we put ourselves in our place under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the first one, put yourself in your place. The second one is this, put the devil in his place. Put the devil in his place. I don't know why as Baptists, we get scared and we start talking about dealing with the devil. But can you see from verse seven that there is a direct command to resist the devil and he will flee from you? That is a command, resist the devil. The devil. There's a reminder at the beginning of this chapter of Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil. I was talking to someone last week and again today who was telling me about all of the needs, and this is true, for practical daily help in dealing with sin. This is Matthew 5.30. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Can I tell you a modern example of that? If your phone causes you to sin, get rid of it. That's a practical application of if your right hand caused you to stumble cut it off. So we take specific steps towards fighting sin, but you need more than practical steps to fighting sin. The reason is, is because you're dealing with the devil, and he's smarter and stronger than you are. Ephesians 6:11 says, "Stand against the devil." First Peter five says, "To resist the devil, because he's our adversary, and he's prowling around seeking someone to devour. And the only way that we will defeat him is if we take our stand against him. Let me just take a moment and explain this. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Jesus, after his death and burial and resurrection was ascended to the right hand of the Father above all rule and power and authority and dominion above everything in the heavenly places, which means Jesus is seated right here above everything in the heavenly places. There is nothing that Jesus does not have authority over. We have that? So all of the demonic spirits, everything, Jesus has authority over that. Then you go to Ephesians chapter two and it says this, we are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Which means the reason that we have authority over the devil is because we're united with Jesus Christ who has already defeated the devil. Which means you don't have to sin. It means that you can stand against the enemy at the moment of temptation. You can resist him and win, not because you're stronger, but because Jesus is stronger. Because you're fighting something that Jesus has already fought and he's declared victory over. That's how this works. And it is a very real moment when we do what Jesus did in his temptation and we speak to the devil and remind him of who we are in Christ Jesus and what Jesus has already done. And we take the very word of God and we use it as the sword of the spirit and we wage war against the enemy and resist him. So we put ourselves in our place and then we open our eyes from prayer and we speak to the devil and we remind him of who he is, that he's a defeated foe and you do not have to sin, that you are seated with the Father, with Christ in the heavenly places. And because of the authority that is yours in Jesus Christ, you have the power to resist him. Listen, if you're never doing this, I assure you you're losing. This is a direct command. This just freaks us out. I have no idea why. Baptists never talk about this. Some of you are scared to death. I'm about to speak in tongues or something. You've got to deal with the devil. You're commanded to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So don't expect him to flee if you don't resist. If you're tired of him resisting, take your stand against him directly out loud with the word of God, reminding him of who he is and who Christ is. Put yourself in your place, put the devil in his place, and here's the last one, put Christ in his place. Put yourself in your place, put the devil in his place, and put Christ in his place. Submit yourself to God, that's you in line with Christ. Resist the devil and draw near to God. What that means is this, is that we put Christ in the place as the center of our life. And we moment by moment keep drawing near to him because we know that our only hope against sin is the very presence of Christ in us. And the more we draw near to him, the more he draws near to us. Now here's the sad reality of sin is that every time we sin, we feel so ashamed that we don't want to go back to the Lord. But the more we run from him, the more we miss him. And so that's why we looked at 1 John 2 earlier this morning. We run back to Jesus and every time we run back to him and we confess our sins, we find Grace, because God gives grace to the humble, and we find his presence and his sufficiency. We keep putting Christ in his place. We cleanse our hands, meaning we repent daily. Every time we sin, we repent. We don't just repent once. We repent every time we sin. We confess our sin. We know he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all iniquity. And then we draw close to Jesus Christ. Aggressively. Daily, moment by moment, getting closer to Christ, knowing the more we draw to him, the more he draws near to us. And the more he draws near to us, the more we have the power to overcome sin and temptation. What I want you to see, this process of getting myself in the right place and putting the devil in his place and putting Christ in his place as the center is a moment by moment, daily process because sin never relents. It never relents. And as long as sin continues to come at us, we must continue to fight it. Church, let me just, let me just say this. Every battle you fight is primarily a spiritual battle. Every battle. You say, well, my battle is with this person or with this or with this situation. No, it's not. It's not ultimately about that. That's, again, what James chapter 4 says. Every battle is primarily a spiritual battle. And so you can do all kinds of things to deal with it. But if you do not deal with it in the spiritual realm, you will never overcome it. The root of every battle is a battle for our heart and our allegiance and our affection. It is a spiritual battle. Until the day we die, we will fight that battle. I just say this to you, though, it's worth it. (laughs) It's worth it because what we're fighting for is life, and we're fighting for our joy, and we're fighting for the supremacy of Christ. And every time we say no to sin and yes to Jesus, we get a little bit more of the taste of life with Jesus. And someday God will rescue us once and for all from this wicked world of sin. But until that moment, we must fight. I just have a strange feeling this morning that some of you have really been beat up by the devil. You've just been beat up by the devil. Can I encourage you to begin this process this morning that in just a moment we're going to have a time to respond. We're going to sing a song in which we declare who we are as the people of God. Can I just plead with you, if you've been gotten beaten up by the devil, run to him this morning. Start now. Get yourself in your place. Get Christ in his place. Put the enemy in his place. Can I plead with you to start this morning and don't let him take advantage of you any longer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.